Lord Jesus, as we've prayed a number of times already, we pray again, would you come and just speak to our hearts? Would you make your presence known? Would we experience transformation as we come and open the living word together? Where two or three are gathered in your name, you will be present there. So Lord, come, make your presence known to us, I pray. May I decrease this morning and you increase. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting uh, a series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' most famous teachings. It covers three chapters from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And we're just going to walk through, it'll probably take the summer, and just looking at each of the different teachings that Jesus had. This is where a lot of his most famous, you've heard it said, but I say, type teachings come in. And we're just going to start walking our way through them. We want to follow Jesus, which means being like Jesus, which means understanding his teaching, which means living out the things that he taught us. And so we're just going to take time to look through those together over the next couple months. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, it feels like we're starting in the middle of something, right? Because it says, Jesus saw the crowds. There wasn't always just this massive crowd of people following Jesus. There was at times, at any point in time, Jesus would have anywhere from 12 to about 120 people that were just his people. They followed him everywhere he went. He would send them out on specific missions and give them tasks. But sometimes there was much larger crowds that would follow him. And so as I was reading this, I was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Before I go too far, where did the crowd come from? And if you look back a few verses, it says, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those who were suffering from various diseases, excuse me, and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So, so Jesus had gone on a walking tour, healing and teaching. These places that it mentions, Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. For someone who walked for a living, this is a massive area to have covered. And everywhere he went, they would bring the sick to him. They would bring the demon-possessed, those who were suffering, and he would heal them. And it says that he would teach the good news of the kingdom everywhere he went. And so who are these crowds? They're the people who saw the miracles and went, I wonder what he's going to do next. They were intrigued by Jesus, and so they began to follow him. I mean, they, they left homes and businesses to follow this man around because they were so intrigued by what he did and, I believe, by what he said. They had never heard teaching like this. You hear this multiple times throughout Jesus' ministry. They'd never heard someone who taught with such authority. But you have to ask, like, what was he teaching? It just says the good news of the kingdom, and then it lists a lot of the stuff that he did. Over in the book of Mark, we have a really short kind of snippet of here's what Jesus would teach when he would go from place to place. 
Mark, in Mark chapter 1, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. So it's talking about the same time frame. Proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is at hand and things need to change because of it. I always give this brief explanation for repentance. It means to turn 180 degrees. When they would have heard the word repent, they would have associated change. It doesn't just say the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore believe, but it said repent and believe. And so he went around working miracles and saying and doing things they'd never seen before, but there was always this message of the kingdom is here and you need to change because of it. And I believe the crowds were following him because they were going, what is this change? What, what, what does he mean, repent? What does he mean when he, even when he says the kingdom of God? And so people were following him days walks away from home just to find out what is he talking about? There was this mystery and intrigue. And so finally the crowd is so big, Jesus goes, okay, I, I got to give some explanation. I have to let them know what I've been talking about. There are so many people following me, I have to give them some more answers. And so he goes up onto a mountainside. They didn't have PA systems and microphones. They had to use natural acoustics. So he goes up onto a mountainside where he can speak to a large group of people. And it says that he began to teach them. And if you look at the, I call them the little cheater headlines in your Bible where it kind of tells you what each section is about. Typically, in Matthew chapter 5, it starts with the Beatitudes. Does anybody know what that word Beatitude means? We, most of us, you know, could tell you where the Beatitudes are found, but does anyone know what that word means? You guys don't speak Latin and Old French? No. Me neither, but Google does. And so I did some Googling this week. And the word Beatitude literally means the blessed are. So the Beatitudes is the blessed ours, those people who are blessed. It comes from com combination of old languages that we don't use anymore. But when we talk about the Beatitudes, we're talking about those who are blessed in the kingdom. Jesus gathers everyone together. He sits them down. And the thing that he leads off with is not, okay, here's the rules of the kingdom, he, he, he's going to get into the, again, you've heard it said, but I tell you, here's some things that need to change. But before he gets to those, he says, let's talk about the kind of people that are valued, even blessed in the kingdom. Let's talk about the kind of people that the king is looking for. And so he starts by saying, blessed are, and right then, as soon as he said that, most of the people in the crowd, imagine hundreds, potentially thousands of people, most of them would have gone, yeah, 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 we know. We get it. We know who is blessed and who isn't blessed. There was a cultural assumption of who was blessed by God and what the blessing of God looked like. So let's talk about it for a minute. In first century Israel, try to put yourself back there. Who would have been assumed to be blessed by God? Who is it? Rabbis. Okay. The, they were well-educated. They tended to be pretty wealthy. They were very popular, almost had like rock star type status. Okay. Jews. 
like, like the, the Jews just period, like they literally had the view, Jews blessed everyone else God hates. Okay, incorrect view, but they would have said simply by being Jewish, we're kind of automatically blessed. Anyone the healthy, like your health is a representation of God's blessing on you. So therefore, if you're unhealthy, probably not blessed. Okay? The rich, I mean, that's what the blessing of God means, right? Is riches and comfort, right? Who else? Who would they have assumed was blessed? Okay, those that had kids back then, to, especially as a woman, to, to have a lot of children was a sign of blessing. And if you didn't have children, you were considered cursed. Anyone else? But that was 2,000 years ago. Certainly we've progressed since then, right? We're on this side of the Beatitudes now. So let's just stop for a minute today. Who, who do we assume is blessed by God? The healthy? The wealthy? Okay, those that have comfort, that have it all together, that it just seems to come easy to. Hashtag blessed life, right? Who else? Talented people. Yeah, smart people. Famous people. We love fame. I, I, I love the NFL, and I just watched the draft a couple uh, weeks ago. It's amazing. we got a lot of Christians in the NFL. I don't know that we do, but every single one of them started with, hey, I just want to thank God for blessing me you know, with this. And because look how good I'm doing. Obviously, God is blessing me, right? Who else? Those who are blessed by God. Think about it. What, what do we post on our social media? the best, right? Because we want people to see, man, look how no one posts themselves with no makeup on, rough day, everything stinks, I'm just trying to make it to the end of the day, hashtag blessed life. We don't do that. We have, in many ways, the same lens that ancient Israel had. Those that have it all together, those, the, the, the healthy and the wealthy, the famous and the powerful are blessed by God. And then there's kind of the rest of us. And so Jesus starts the Beatitudes with blessed are. And again, all of them immediately go over here. And it would have been shocking to hear what Jesus actually said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you came into that talk thinking, man, this guy's doing miracles and everything's good, like this is awesome, and he starts with blessed are and then follows with this, there's going to be a lot of confusion in the crowd. You can, you can hear the murmuring starting of, no, no, I, I, he said it wrong. He said poor in spirit. Didn't he mean rich? Like he said meek. Didn't he mean powerful? He said all the wrong things. 
So we're going to take some time and just kind of walk through this. This week, we're going to look at the first three. Next week, we'll come back and look at some more. But let's just start to break these down a little bit. Because I think Jesus was very intentional with what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one we trip over. This is not one that we tend to have a lot of clarity on. Church, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Okay, so kind of like an open-handedness toward the way they live and even the things that you have. What else? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Destitute of any righteousness. That's exactly how I would have said that too. Very smart. Okay, destitute, like without any righteousness of your own. Yeah, the, the Beatitudes build on each other. They're not like all distinctly separate things, but he's, the list kind of, it snowballs as it's going. If, as you understand this one, you can start to understand this one and on and on it goes. Same thing works backwards. If you miss this first one, if you miss the poor in spirit, the rest of these are not going to make any sense to you. And, and it's this depravity is a, a theological word that, that basically means I have no good of my own. I, I was having a conversation uh, with with a, a brother in Christ a couple weeks ago, and we weren't specifically talking about this verse, but as we were talking, he just he flipped the words and something clicked into place for me. He was talking about spiritual poverty. Poor in spirit, I'm always like, ah, I don't, that, but spiritual poverty, for some reason, just started to click with me of going, I have no, like, righteous spirituality of my own. I am poor in spirit, because I bring nothing to the king. I don't come and go, man, look at the golden riches, the, the spiritual golden riches that I brought with me. Hey, king, you're better because I'm here now. I have something to offer you. Instead, I am spiritually poor. I come looking for a handout from the king. I have nothing to offer you. Will you, will you bless me anyway? Last week, uh, we looked at the story of Mephibosheth, a, a man who was lame in his legs, who was an enemy of the king, yet David invited him up and poured out grace on him and said, you're going you're gonna to eat at my table. And does anybody remember what Mephibosheth's response was? Why would my lord the king be concerned for a dead dog like me? And we go, whoa, 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 Mephibosheth, don't be so hard on yourself. But he went, why would you even know my name? I bring nothing to the table. He was aware of his poverty. I am simply going to be a drain on your resources. I can't even get a job and chip in. I bring nothing to you. But the king delighted to pour out his grace on him. The same is true of us. Blessing in the kingdom of God begins with a place of going, 
your grace is sufficient because I have nothing. I have no righteousness of my own that I bring to the table. You are not better off because I'm here. I'm a drain on your resources. Now, God has endless resources. Like, it's insane. We can't even imagine it. But I add nothing to you, but you delight in me anyway. Jesus would teach later in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the heart of that poor in spirit. Lord Jesus, I am clinging on to you because I recognize that apart from you, I can do nothing of substance. I can do nothing of eternal value. I can do nothing of lasting impact. It's only as I cling to you as a branch to a vine that anything good will happen, that any blessing will occur. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Coming to the king and admitting, I own nothing, I bring nothing of value. And in place, the king says, I give you an inheritance in the kingdom. I give you something greater than you could have ever hoped to bring to me when we come with empty hands. I want to give a little warning because there's a fine line to be walked here. This is a starting place for repentance. This is a coming to the king empty-handed and going, I have nothing. And in a sense, this is always true of us, but we have an enemy of our souls who loves to twist. And so for some, this spiritual poverty, this, this recognition of I am undeserving of the king's grace, if we're not careful, leads to distance and not blessing. If Mephibosheth would have every day of his life, it said he got to eat at the king's table, if he would have walked in every day going, I'm a dead dog, don't look at me, don't, I don't deserve this, I don't, eventually the king would have been like, dude, are you in or are you out? Like, what are you doing? Accept <laughs> my grace. I, there is this lie that we can believe that almost like the king is now ashamed of us because we're poor in spirit. And we have to continue to grovel at his feet. He is a good father. He invites us in knowing we bring nothing, but then he lifts us up. And listen, at no point in time do I get to go, man, look at everything I do for the king. Look at how good I, like at no point in time do we cross that line. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's able to walk this line because he says, I am the greatest sinner the world has ever seen. I'm chief of sinners. And many times he reminds the church, look at what my life was before Jesus. I was a horrible person. I was killing those in the church. I was terrible, chief among sinners. But then he says, I am more than a conqueror through Christ. And I can, in fact, walk boldly into the throne room of grace to find mercy in my time of need. There's this beautiful line that he walks at no point in time. None of this comes through my strength, but I have been given an inheritance in the kingdom and I don't now have to walk ashamed in front of my father. I can stand because of what he's done with my head held high. I can look my father in the eye and with pride and boldness, I can come before him. I can ask for his help. I can talk with him about the things that I've done wrong.
We have to be so careful that this idea of spiritual poverty doesn't drive us away from the Lord, doesn't lead to a distance and a hiding from him, but instead a gratitude and a blessing. Does that make sense, church? Do, do you understand the difference between those two? The enemy will love to twist. Even in our best intentions, we go poor in spirit. Okay, he's going to try to drive us too far to where we miss it. But it's walking this line of I am poor in spirit and I have also been so richly blessed and invited in beyond what I ever could have done or hoped for or deserved. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. We as a culture don't do very well with mourning. This is not something that, that we really grasp a hold of. If someone in here has ever experienced a, a loss of someone close to them, a, a loss of a parent maybe, you know you get a couple days off work, but by next week, people are kind of looking at you going, aren't you over it yet? I, I thought, yeah, 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 you went to the funeral, but like, how come we're not back to normal yet? We have a culture that's really, really uncomfortable with mourning and with grief, and so we tend to just kind of skip over it. We don't really pay much attention to it. We, we try just not to look at it right in the eyes, but just get around mourning. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why would we be blessed when we mourn? Okay, it brings us closer to him. How does it bring us closer to him in, in mourning? Yeah. He, he doesn't say, blessed are those who never experience anything difficult. That's what we would like, and that's what we tend to think. But he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will find comfort. Where is our comfort found? Who is our comfort found in? Christ. He says, like, listen, if it's true, blessed are those who mourn, then it's also true, those who don't mourn remain unblessed. When we come to him in our brokenness and we go, this is all I have to offer you, he, he makes himself known to us in a profound way that brings comfort in our mourning. We live in a world that says, never let them see you cry. Only show people the best and the strongest that you have. Hide your weaknesses. But he says, blessed are those when they're in their most broken state who come to me. They will be blessed and they will find comfort beyond anything they could believe. Blessed are those who don't only come to me when they're strong and in control. And listen, I want to be clear. Blessing doesn't look like everything is restored back to us and everything is made perfect. Blessing doesn't look like, okay, we will never hurt again. The blessing that we're after is his very presence in the midst of our mourning and our grief. It doesn't say, blessed are you because I'll take all the mourning away and you'll never have a bad feeling again. But he will be with us and bring comfort in the midst of those difficulties and weaknesses and brokenness. Does this make sense, church? 
So let me ask you this. What kinds of things should we mourn or grieve? Typically, it's kind of reserved. We think of it like death. Someone we love passes, and there's a, there's a mourning or a grieving. Is that all he's talking about? When you lose someone close to you, I'll be close and comfort you? Or are there other ways or other things that we should be mourning and grieving? Okay, listen. There's a, there's a sense of mourning when change happens. So some of us, myself, I love change. There's a sense of mourning when things stay the same too long. Not kidding. <laughs> 100%. For many, there's a, there's a sense of grieving when something changes. Because I, I thought it was always going to be like that. Because I, I really liked how that was, and now things are changing. And there's a sense of grieving. I don't, I don't feel comfortable where things are going. I, I don't know if I like where things are going. I, I don't know what's coming, and that makes me uncomfortable, and there's a sense of loss that comes with it. What else? Okay, how so? Relationships. Yeah. Yeah. When, when relationships are broken, one side, you know, sins against the other, or there's a misunderstanding or miscommunication, and, and there's a break in the relationship, we tend to just think, oh, it's not a big deal, just suck it up, just keep moving, it's fine. But if we're honest, there's a sense of loss. This friend, maybe that I thought I could trust, I don't think I can trust anymore. There, there's a distance there. There's a sense of grieving that comes with that. But we've been told since we were very young to harden our hearts to that, to just put on a stiff upper lip, just keep moving, everything will be fine. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What else? Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 Sometimes you just look at the situation that the world is in. I mean, I don't know, man, there's so many different things we could point to and I don't want to get in trouble. So I won't point to any specific ones, but you look at it and you go, it's just a broken system. It's not that like they're evil or they're evil. It's just broken people leading to more hurt people. And there's something inside of us that we mourn because we know this isn't the way that it was meant to be. Right. We see here's we catch glimpses of it in scripture. Here's what life should be like. And we look at reality, we see a difference and there's a mourning. There's a sense of loss. Even if I'm not necessarily in the situation, I can mourn for you because, ah, oh, it's just so broken. And so we can mourn just the hurts that we find in the world. Anything else? Your kids grow up? Yeah, right? We, we kind of like them when they're little. They're, they're cute, man. And as they start to get older, forgive me if you're in here and you're a teenager, you're less cute. You, you've changed. We stayed the same, but you changed. Now, as relationships grow and change, especially with your children, we kind of have these ideas and ideals for who they're going to be. And guess what? They don't stick to the plan. They become their own people. Yeah. 
Well, and the, and the truth is, when they're young, they're pretty excited to see you, right? And guess what? That, that day comes when like, ugh, dad, don't tell those jokes anymore. They're hilarious. And they always, you used to love them. Mm-hmm. So, this, hey, this ain't time for that. My jokes are hilarious. But they don't need you anymore as much. They don't want you around as much. It hurts. There's a grieving and a mourning, and we can all look at it and go, yeah, but it's natural. Yeah, but I did the same thing to my parents. Like, true, but it still hurts. Blessed are those who actually stop and grieve it. Lord, it hurts that the relationship isn't what I thought it would be. I'm not, maybe, I'm not saying they sinned. I'm not even saying I sinned. Like, it just, it isn't what I thought it would be, and that hurts. They used to, man, run up to me and jump into my arms when I walked in the door, and they don't do that anymore. I'd probably throw my back out if they did, but, like, but it still hurts that that has changed. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In case you couldn't hear Cheryl, she was saying there's, I forget what culture it's from, it's an Asian culture, um, where they have this method of taking broken pottery and they put it back together, but they use gold to put it back together. And so it becomes this incredibly beautiful thing that only happened because it was broken. And you learn to appreciate the brokenness. And I think the reason that things like that catch us so much is because everything else in our culture says, ignore brokenness. Brokenness is bad. Brokenness is weak. But Jesus calls us to come spend time in our brokenness, which is hard, but to bring it to him and to find comfort. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mourning and grieving our life before Christ, and, and I would even continue it on, mourning and grieving my sin today. Like, let me ask you this, and this one, this causes me some pause. When was the last time that you shed a tear over your sin? That, that you actually were grieved in your heart because you had gone your way instead of the Lord's? And listen, I'm asking myself here too, like, when was the last time that we were actually broken, that we mourned our sin? Or was it just, a, oh, hey, yep, sorry, I made an oopsie again, Lord, sorry about that. But did we sit and, did we even ask him, Lord, how did you feel when I said that? How, like, can you help me to see how the other person felt when I said that? Our hearts tend to get real hard real fast but softening them and going, Lord, help me to mourn my sin. Listen, not a fun prayer, but an incredibly powerful one. Lord, would you teach me what it is to grieve my sin? Because listen, he's not just going to come and throw stones and go, and you're bad at this, and you're bad at this. Things will start to come up, and you will feel broken over them, but so that he can bring comfort. His whole goal is he wants to bless. It's not when you're poor in spirit, he's going to go, see, I told you. 
He goes, I'm so glad you recognized it because now I can bless you. When we come to him in brokenness, he goes, man, I'm not glad that you're grieving and mourning, but I'm so glad you brought it to me because I've been waiting to give you comfort. Does this make sense? So the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? Not a word that we use very often. What does it mean to be meek? Under control, control, gentle, weak, humble. Yeah, there, there's like, when we experience that insecurity or, or Maverick had said like weakness, our natural response is to puff up. You know, we've all heard it before. The, the bully at school is probably super insecure and hurting, right? But the only thing he knows is to project strength. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how. But an actual understanding of this word meekness is, is actually has nothing to do with weakness or insecurity, but it has the idea of power under control. Actually, in, in this specific use when Jesus says it, it has the idea of God's power under God's control. A power that comes from him, that has been given to us. He's already talked about an inheritance and all of this that we get. We receive power and we receive the ability to control it. How many, how many in here can quote the fruits of the Spirit? I know, we're, I'm putting you on the spot here. Let's work on it as a church. And if, sometimes if there's one word that's different, your translation, mine, we're not going to worry about it. But the fruits of the Spirit, how does it start? And self-control, that's the one I was aiming for. You guys all nailed it. Some of you thought there was only six. Some of you remembered there's all nine, but we all got self-control, and that's huge. A fruit of the Spirit is the ability to control ourselves. We pray, oh, I just want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? That's not a biblical thing. But what there is, he says, the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to control yourselves. To have self-control in matters of sin and and to not do the things that, that God has called us not to do, but also the ability to be in control with, with the power and authority that God has even given us himself. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Some translations use that word gentle that, Cheryl, I think you had said. Listen, the only reason that gentleness is a virtue, it doesn't doesn't mean blessed are those who are just soft-spoken and wouldn't even know how to raise their voice, but those who choose gentleness when there's another option. When, When harshness is on the table, but they choose gentleness will be blessed, will inherit the earth. The the Jewish people, again, back to first century Israel, Jesus was speaking to those people. They were a people of rebellion and fighting. 
they had continually tried to, to raise up by force of arms and throw off Rome. They tried to throw off Babylon. They tried to throw off, like again and again and again. The Jewish people were in this cycle of we don't like where we are. Let's rise up and fight. This was their natural stance. Let's defend ourselves. Let's take back what's ours. They had all of these different, like, because we're Jewish, we're God's people, so let's fight. And Jesus comes to them, and he doesn't say, blessed are those who fight for what's theirs, for they will inherit the land. Because listen, Israel had been trying to inherit the land for a thousand years through fighting and bloodshed and rebellion. But Jesus said, those who have power under control, they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to inherit the land. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus' disciples, I'll be honest, never really understood power. One of the things that Jesus was continually butting heads with his disciples on was their view of power versus his view of power. One of them in Luke chapter 9, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples. He had the 12, but then there was three, Peter, James, and John, that were with him everywhere. They didn't understand how the king uses power. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he said to his disciples, or excuse me, then he and his disciples went to another village. Lord, how dare they disrespect you like that? We've seen you do some crazy stuff. Should we call down fire from heaven? Like, let's go Old Testament on them, Jesus. And he looks at him and goes, what are you doing? Have you learned nothing? Have you ever seen me use my power to smite anyone? But they still had this worldly view of it's the powerful who are blessed. It's those who defend themselves and take back what's theirs. No one talks to our master that way. We'll, we'll throw lightning at them. And Jesus turns and rebukes them. What are you doing? They didn't understand the king's use of power. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, Judas brings a mob with clubs and swords and torches to arrest him. Notice how Jesus responds. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. This is Peter, the other one of the three who didn't get it drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting his ear, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and that he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how, when, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus goes, look, you don't think I have the power to stand up for myself? but that's not why my Father has given me power. Not blessed are those who can just, who are stronger than everybody else, who can overpower everyone else, for they'll inherit the land. That's, 
That's a worldly gospel. At times, and this will be unpopular, that's an American gospel. But blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who choose not to stand up and defend themselves, to use their power for their own gain, but who instead place that power under God's control. They will inherit the land. We've been adopted into what I've always said since I was a very young believer, a backwards countercultural kingdom. In the kingdom of God, up is down and down is up. The last will be first and the first will be last. Not blessed are those who are strong and, and famous and, and talented, but blessed are those who are poor, broken, and gentle. Now listen, we, we all understand this. His kingdom isn't backwards, right? Ours is. His kingdom is the way that things were meant to be. We've been perverted and twisted to where it looks like what's good is bad and bad is good. We have been adopted into this backwards countercultural kingdom. Our culture says, look at how awesome you are. You are the hero of your own story. His kingdom calls us to recognize our own poverty. We need to empty our hands so that they can be filled by the king. I bring nothing. I only have what you give to me anyway. I am poor in spirit. Would you bless me? Our culture tells us, never let them see you cry. Always be strong. Always be positive. His kingdom invites us to come to him in our weakness and our brokenness. The only way to receive comfort and the peace that we all long for is to acknowledge our weakness to him. Lord, I'm broken here and there's nothing I can do to fix it. Would you give me comfort? Lord, I'm just sad and I don't know what to do with it. I am depressed. I am anxious. I am grieving and mourning. I feel a sense of loss and maybe I don't even know what it's for. Would you come and bring me your comfort? Our culture tells us to be strong and powerful, to defend ourselves and to stand up for ourselves. It, it, it has this, we need to take back blank for the kingdom mentality. And you can fill in the blank with anything you want. We need to take back our country, we need to take back our schools, we need to take back, and it's all this very aggressive language that you do not find in the scriptures. Again, even James and John were going, we need to take back our Lord's reputation. They disrespected him. Let's call down some fire. And Jesus went, you have completely missed it. His kingdom calls us to lay down our rights in meekness and gentleness and to trust him to be our defender. And that is harder, harder than most of us knew when we signed up for it. But to trust him to be our defense, not to use our own power and strength to defend ourselves. We need to listen, learn to trust him to defend himself. Far too often we are offended on God's behalf and we're going to take the fight to them. How dare they take prayer out of this and how dare they... Listen, the lion doesn't need your help defending himself. Just get out of the way. Do we trust him to defend himself or do we have to take the fight to everybody else because how dare they say that about him? God is very capable of defending himself and he doesn't need us to do it. We have been called to walk in meekness and gentleness. 
she pointed it out. It was good. Yeah, I, I wonder how much of that us taking that power and we're going to go do comes from a place of I've been hurt but never really dealt with it, and it's a self-protection. No one's going to hurt me again. No one's going to say that again or do that again because we've never learned to come to the Lord and go, I'm weak, would you comfort me? So the next time anything even begins to look like that thing that hurt me before, I power up against it. Instead of going... My king was enough for me before. He comforted me. He tended my wounds. I don't have to defend myself again. I can choose gentleness. I can lay down my rights just like Jesus did and trust that he is enough. Trust that he will defend me. He will take care of me. I want to look at what Jesus said he was going to use his power for. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue. He gets invited to come up and to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he just happens to open and read this passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. This is Jesus saying, I have been given power. The spirit of God rests on me. And to be anointed was to be anointed with power. And here's what he says. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God has given me power so that I can use it on other people's behalf. Jesus, we we know, would refuse to defend himself, would refuse to power up against others. He allowed himself to be slandered, to be misunderstood, even to be beaten and killed. But because he was so intent on using his power to lift up those that couldn't fight for themselves, to use his voice for those that couldn't speak for themselves, we have been empowered by God to live out the same mission. If we're going to fight for something, let's fight for the blind so that they can receive sight. Let's fight for the poor who are able to fight for themselves. For the prisoners to be set free, these are things worth fighting for. These are things I believe we've been empowered to fight for. But it will not be with the weapons that the world uses. It will not look like the fight that the world wages. It will come with humility and meekness, gentleness and care. It will come from a heart that wants to also bring comfort to those that mourn because we've been made like our Father and we want to do what our Father does. Not just to wound other people because we've been wounded. Is this making sense? You guys went real quiet on me, which means it's either hitting hard or not hitting at all. Okay. Jesus started this whole thing by traveling around and preaching. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So as we look at these first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I want to ask you the same thing that Jesus would have asked. Is there areas in your heart where you need to repent? Is there a proud religiosity about you and you need to repent and admit your spiritual poverty before the Lord? Maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but in the back of your mind, do you have like, man, God's pretty happy that I'm here. Are there things that he has called you to slow down and to mourn and to grieve, but you've hardened your heart and rushed past? If so, it's time to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's available to us if we will repent. Blessed are the meek. Are there areas where you have defended yourself, where you have powered up and taken the fight to others, where you have wounded people on God's behalf, maybe even, that he has not called you to wound? So I simply ask, as Jesus did, Are there areas that you need to repent so that you can believe and receive the good news of the kingdom? So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to take a moment of silence. Chris, if you just leave this passage up there, and just read through these and ask the Lord, Lord, are there areas where I need to repent, where you're calling me to turn, to change? And if so, just lay those at his feet. Lord Jesus, We pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, now we're seeing some specific areas where you desire to bring your kingdom. And we actually have to ask, do I want his will to be done like that? And so, Lord, if there is anything in these three beatitudes where you desire to bless us, but we've been holding you at arm's length, you've desired to bless us, but our our pride or our hard-heartedness has gotten in the way, Lord, would you bring the conviction of your Holy Spirit now, never to wound us, but always to move us toward healing and comfort. And may we be bold, may we be willing to come before the throne of grace to find mercy in our time of need. Come and speak to your people, I pray.